We don't really focus on either the multiple or the cash on cash. Yeah, because when you look at your cash on cash, whether it's 6% or 9%, you understand that as a non-financial person. You put in 100 grand, it's a 10% cash on cash, you get 10,000 a year. That's what you're gonna average. I always like to tell our guys, look at the multiple, all right? You're putting in 100 grand, if the projection is a 1.8 multiple in year five, then you know your, your money's probably tied up for five years and you're probably gonna make 80,000 on your 100, so you'll get a return of 180,000. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Darren Davis from Presario Ventures. And today, we're talking about multifamily development investing and comparing and contrasting that with acquiring existing assets. And this is what Darren does. Like Part of what his company does is they develop multifamily. And he tells us a few uh, case studies of deals that they've done. We get into some strengths and potentially weaknesses of the development uh, strategy and ways in which he and his business partner and their team have mitigated some of those risks or, or all of them as you, as you may perceive it. And we also talk a bit about analyzing development deals as from a passive investor standpoint, what passive investors uh, should look at first when it comes to evaluating a multifamily development deal. I had a great conversation with Darren. There's so much in here uh, regarding developing multifamily, evaluating deals, where the opportunity is, particularly in his market, why they like to invest in certain areas, how they see the future of multifamily development and multifamily more generally. So, so much interesting stuff in here. I learned a lot and I know you will as well. If you're an Apple podcast user and you have not yet done so, and you do enjoy the show, please take a quick second, leave us a rating and review on Apple podcast. I'd appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show. That helps us rank higher in the Apple podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me the warm and fuzzies because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you haven't yet, no matter what podcast app you use, do take a quick second, look up the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode straight to your mobile device every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator about real estate with passive investors and split the return. I've never done a development deal, but I'm not opposed to it. And I like learning about new things and talking with the experts in the field. And Darren is certainly one of those experts. So I learned a lot and I know you will as well today when we talk about multifamily development with Darren Davis from Presario Ventures. Here we go. Darren, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. It's been a great conversation so far and you have a wealth of experience that uh, I'm, I'm really excited to continue learning from you. And, you know, I already have been, have had the fortunate uh, situation too. And for our listeners out there who don't know about you and your business, can you give us a quick intro? And then we're going to dive into discussing why to do multifamily development. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my business partner, Tom Burns, and I started this company really informally in 2008, 2009. Um, and we knew at the time that we, we were both committed to real estate and passive income and, and it's kind of growing a business. Uh, but it wasn't until probably, and we had invested together, but it was probably about four and a half to five years ago. I think both of us kind of looked at each other and just said, you know what? We love what we do. Uh, we understand real estate. We've been in it 15, 20 years. We have the, the same goals. 
Uh, we have a very common bond and everything we believe in. And we said, let's start the company. And we literally started our first hire. Uh, we've got a team of seven now. Uh, we primarily do development, uh, but we do do acquisition. And, and there's some reasons for that. And we'll probably talk about that a little bit later. But uh, we're based here in Austin, Texas, which we're very fortunate. I can't say we're the smartest guys. Uh, we just have, a, I mean, being in Texas and then being in Central Texas and then being in Austin, you know, gives us a lot of advantages. Uh, we don't see any reason for us to do a lot outside of the state of Texas. We just continue to grow um, business-friendly uh, environment here. So, um, you know, we, we just feel that we're very fortunate. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Texas and Austin in particular have had some very, uh, let's say, uh, fortunate market dynamics, but there are reasons for that. Business friendly, yeah. like you said, a lot of very good reasons behind that. And today in, in the multifamily investing space, I feel like we hear mostly about folks doing acquisition and value add, sell it in three to five years, maybe the timeline is different, but that's kind of the model. Whereas I think there's probably a lot of opportunity in doing development of multifamilies. So I'd like to discuss with you why invest in multifamily development and what are your thoughts about kind of mixing that into a more a broader investing strategy? Sure. Sure. You know, you know, we started out just straight up acquisition. We're not developers, we're not general contractors, we're nothing like that. But as we kind of looked at our space most recently, we said, you know, what are we good at? And we said, okay, you know, we have a lot of land here. Um, and and Tom and I, and I'll kind of go back to 2008, 2009, we had we learned a lot back then, if you, you know, the guys are old enough to remember what was going on in real estate back then, but we had actually bought a piece of land. And I remember having a term sheet from a lender uh, to go forward with the financing. Well, I get a call one day and said, we're, we're withdrawing our, our uh, term sheet and our offer. I said, we can't, you know, I mean, we're going forward. And it was kind of like, sue me, you know, whatever. <laughs> so like, so I mean, it just all went away. Um, so we had to kind of put stuff together and figure it out. So, you know, the fire hose was, I mean, straight on us. I mean, right in the mouth. And we were like, how do we pull this off? Uh, it took us a little bit, but we learned that the only way we were going to pull this project up, and we had investors in it already. We had done some land acquisition. We had done some engineering, some architecture. Uh, but we had to learn of a new debt, debt structure. And we had to hire a GC and we had to hire a developer and at the time, I mean, it was a lot of lessons learned. Did we do everything perfect? No. Uh, but still to this day, 11 years later, we have that asset still. And it's been one of our best performing assets, you know, that we've had from a cash flow perspective. So we're very proud of that. But you kind of fast forward to today. Um, if you look at the competition, especially here in Austin, I mean, you can have one property being bid on by 20 different groups, qualified groups. There's a lot of capital out there. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing, you know, three, three and a half cap rates. And in my opinion, we're losing control of that. You know, we're losing control of the, you know, the force before the trees, you know, the, the side of, you know, what are we doing here? We're just all nuts, you know? And it, we sit back and I'm going like, where do we have the most control? Well, if, if we go acquire the land and then we start the development process, we're competing with just ourselves. You know, we have the ability to find out, you know, we don't go buy raw land with no utilities or no zoning. You know, there's utilities, there's zoning. We know what we're getting, but we have such, so much more control. And, and that's not to say that we've abandoned the acquisition cash flow model, but we kind of looked at this and said, you know what? It doesn't hurt to do a development. You might not get cash flow in the first two to three years, but if I can 2X your investment as an investor by year three and a half or four, you're probably not going to call me up and complain. 
you know, you can probably take that cash and find another cash flow or find another development and just diversify a little bit more. It was good for us. It was good for our investors. Nice. Well, I, I definitely uh, can appreciate why folks might want to go for that upside. And I can see that you're, in a way, you're stepping back from some of the madness of the acquisition market where folks are competing at a three, three and a half cap for existing assets and you're developing them. Right. So your 2008, 2009 property, you said you still have that now. Yeah. Is that the model that you're still pursuing the properties that you're you're working on and putting together today? You're, you're planning on holding those for 10 years or what's the strategy moving forward? Is it build it, sell it off, build it, uh, refi and keep it, refi out investors? What are you doing? That's a great question. And, and, and yes, 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 and yes. Okay. So <laughs> when, we, when, we, when, we, when we put these together, the way we do our, our agreements, it, you typically have your general contractor and developer that are ready to exit. They're merchant builders. They want to build it, sell it, and move on. Uh, we're private equity. So we want to come in and we want more options than that. Now we're not going to, if we're going to, you know, double, triple our money in three or four years, and it makes sense to, to do that. We actually, well, I'll back up. We have an asset right now that we went to, that we uh, are getting offers on, but we wanted to compare what our pro forma looked like that we gave our investors two and a half years ago. And it's not even on the pro forma because we're making that much more money than what the pro forma showed at, you know, your seven, eight, nine. But with that said, we do a first rider refusal with the developers. We have a buy sell, you know, if they want to sell, we get to buy. Um, we have, um, you know, if we can do the, the refi model, you know, we love that model. In fact, the asset that we were talking about here in Austin from 2009, uh, we've refied that one twice and we've been able to pull cash out. And give to our investors, you know, that, that money comes out tax-free on the front end. Uh, and people love that. And that is, if, if we could pick a model and stick with it, it would be to build, then stabilize, then refi, and then cash flow, and then refi, and then <laughs> cash flow, and just keep on going. But it doesn't work out like that all the time. But that's that's really our model. You know, we like that model. Uh, and, but we're not merchant builders. We would like to hold it if we could, but it doesn't always work out that way. So the thing that really comes to mind for me here, well, there's a lot of things that come to mind, but the first thing I think about are the actual costs of development as compared to the costs of buying existing assets. Do you buy existing assets? You're going to have a lot, probably a lot of rehab to do. So you have to bake that in. Whereas these days we're hearing so much about it's hard to find uh, labor. It's hard to find different, you know, uh, hardware and wood was going crazy there for a little while. How does that all kind of shake out when you're you're looking at the cost of development and especially compared to a theoretical market downturn? You know, you don't want to have a I'm just putting a number out there, $200,000 per unit cost to develop and then you get a fuse down the road and they're only selling for 150 a unit or something like that. So how do you shake it out against the existing assets in terms of costs? That's, that's a very good question. So there's there's no doubt about it. Today, we're going through some uncharted waters. You know, we're seeing, uh, you know, lumber up 4X. Now it's come down half that. Um, we're seeing supply chain, you know, mishaps. You know, we can't get appliances, uh, you know, in certain places. There, there's all kinds of things happening. And we've been managing through that. Uh, it has added some time to our development. But with that time, we've also learned quite a few lessons about we've, it's forced us to find new vendors. It's forced us to find new general contractors. It's forced us to do things that we hadn't done in the past. 
and things are normalizing more today. Now, is that going to last or do we have another pandemic issue and we have another, you know, pause in the market? You know, we don't know. Uh, but, you know, we've got 10 years experience. Uh, we have a great partnership group as far as GCs and developers. We know who's got the buying power, who can deliver. It is a little bit of a risk, but it's something that we've been able to manage through to date. And, and along with that, you know, you know, we inflation's kind of the big buzzword now, you know, what's happening. If you look at real estate, I mean, it, it, if it parallels, you know, if the inflation of the services on the backside, on the cost side are going up, typically the inflation on the top side, you know, from the rents uh, are, are, are matching those. Okay. So they seem to work together for the most part. So we don't get big swings in um, expenses where inflation or the top line is not addressed also. So for us, if you, and if you think about this, when you get that long-term debt and you've got fixed debt at, you know, three, three and a half, four percent, yeah, and the your inflation continues to go three, four, five, six, seven, that spread on your debt coverage ratio gets so big that you have the ability to take on a large correction. You know, so, I mean, you start looking at debt coverage ratio fixed, at one one when you start the loan, you know, meaning one hundred ten percent, but then your rents continue to grow, 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 grow. Well, that gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So there's a there's a lot of room, and we do we do sensitivity uh, underwriting. So we'll say, okay, where is our break even? So and, and a lot of times we'd have to be in the seventy two to seventy five percent occupied, and we our rents would have to be 35 percent less than what they're currently trending for right now. So we put a lot of a lot of space in between the good and the and the you know probable. It's worked out so far, and there's a lot of math behind it. You know, you're an engineer; you understand that. You can kind of say, "Hey, you know, the, these guys have got enough cushion built in there; they're probably going to be fine." Yeah, and I mean, I'm I'm glad you you know we we talked about inflation and how that impacts um, or how how debt is is really a tool to kind of somewhat amplify our return. But if we're paying 3% on long-term money and inflation is running at three and a half or 4% or even more, I mean, that's, that's like almost free money from and, the lenders. You know, and at three and a half or four or five a year, and, you know, times three or four years, and all of a sudden you've got that fixed debt. You know, we also, um, some of your guys, you know, your audience may or may not know about this, but there's some products out there that are uninsured. Uh, and that debt gets to 35 and 40 years, AM, and 35 and 40 year term. So you start fixing 3.1, 3.2. There's even been some sub threes for 40 year debt. You take out that interest rate risk. You know, um, you've got you've got an asset there, and that's when debt becomes your friend. I mean, big time. Uh, you know, you get the right debt on an asset, you you can manage the rest of it. Absolutely. Now, when I think about uh, development more broadly, and also, you know, what I see around me, and I invite the listeners to think about any developments that you see around you in your town, we pretty much just see what most people would describe as class A, high end new development, or pretty close to the high end stuff that's going to command top of market rents, it's not going to be, you know, what you might call affordable housing or something like that. Is that what you see in Austin? And if so, why is that? Let's talk a little bit about, you know, how you kind of target that, that strata of the market that your, your product is going to um, be for. That's, uh, that's probably a very, very relevant question because we're very unique in that aspect. 
you are not going to see us go downtown do a 10, 10 story, you know, mid rise in downtown Austin. That's not us. Okay. We are absolutely that secondary market. We like that garden style product, drive up garden style, bread and butter, you know, just really, let's just, you know, let's buy the rinse, repeat, and let's keep going. So we go into the suburbs that have, you know, uh, they have uh, major thoroughfares, major highways that get, you know, for transportation, uh, school districts. Uh, we, we go into the, you know, anything in our, our, like our Austin MSA would really be about a 30 minute radius um, around us. If you go south of Austin, you know, you, now you're getting into San Antonio, North San Antonio. So you, we have this between North Austin and South San Antonio. We've got about 120 miles on I-35, which is our major corridor in the state of Texas. There's a lot of land still there uh, and there's a lot of infrastructure being built and, and the people just keep coming. The state of Texas has a we have a 200,000 unit plus deficit of housing right. So and we can't and it keeps growing every year. We can't keep up with it. Um, if you look at the jobs and the employment that just keep moving here uh, for the cost of living job friendly state. Um, Texas is going to be fortunate. I mean, for the most part, the United States needs housing, but Texas is just unique and it needs more housing. So, and we're going to, we're going to fill that gap in the secondary market. We like that. The other thing that we've really started looking into, and we're doing our first one, it's a product called Build to Rent. I don't know if you're, you're aware of it, but it, it's like a subdivision of single family homes that's a, like a multifamily plot. So you still have a clubhouse. You still have property management. You still have everything, but everybody has a little 1,100, 1,200 foot garden style home with a one car garage, typically a backyard, and they get they get a home, a small home, but they don't have all of the maintenance and upkeep of a single family home, and they don't have to come up with a 20, 25% to buy that single family home type product. And we saw those become real popular at the beginning of the pandemic um, because people wanted space. You know, they didn't want to be on top of each other. Um, they have this product in Phoenix, Orlando, and it's done incredibly well. I think you're going to see a lot more called BTR, Build to Rent. Uh, we're doing our first one in Houston right now, and we've got another one lined up um, probably to start by Q1 of next year. High, high demand, high demand for those right now. Interesting. So it, it is, that that is something that I've heard of, but I feel like I've only heard of the um, what's the best way to put this? The the big money Wall Street guys like like hedge funds with enormous amounts of capital that they need to deploy going for that. And I don't know, you don't strike me as one of those guys. Not that you're not a big money guy, but you know, you're not calling in from Wall Street. You're calling in from but, Texas. You know, we're we're boots on the ground. We have relationships. We have friends. We know the developers. We know the landowners around here. Uh, and a lot of guys would like to do business with the guys they know. And we're not going to ever compete with, you know, a billion dollar fund for build a rent product, but we can sure knock out two a year for the next 10 years. You know, um, that's something we can do all day, every day. But I do wonder about those, how the, I go back to cost of construction, how that uh, build to rent more like a, like, like a house, maybe like a townhouse. I don't know exactly how your construction is, but how that cost would compare to a probably more basic, like apartment style type of thing that's less like a home. Is it, is it kind of a marginal cost difference? It seems like that would also take more land, but you said you have a lot of land there. What, what do you think about that? You, you it got it all. Compare? You're exactly spot on on all of it, but here's the, here's the kicker. Hey, I'll okay. No, you did good. You did really good, but here's <laughs> the kicker. It's such high demand for that product right now. 
that rent premiums are about 30 to 35% higher for the same amount of square footage in a two bedroom versus a built to rent two bedroom. So, but you're right. I mean, you have, you, you don't have a common wall. Okay. So there's costs there. You have separated roof lines. There's costs there. You know, you have more concrete drive, a little more driveway. I mean, so there is additional cost, but the rent premiums are, are very nice. Um, people want that product. I mean, you've got retirees that are saying, Hey, it's time to downside. I'm going to sell my home and take my million dollars, you know, out of my home and I'm going to go into a community where everything's taken care of. And then you have, you know, younger millennials that are coming in saying, I, you know, I'm not ready to buy a home. I want to be more mobile. I don't want to put down a hundred grand or 100, 200 grand for a home uh, today. And they're, but they want that community. Um, some of these are incredible. You know, the streetscapes, they may, I mean, they look like little, you guys aren't old enough to know this, but they look like little Mayberry RFD, you know, you know, <laughs> they look like, Little small towns are really cool looking and, and they're really they're really family friendly. So they're becoming very popular. And I think you're gonna see quite a bit more of that product. And I know that we're looking for it because we have um, equity looking for it as well. Nice, nice. So I really want to make sure we get where the rubber hits the road, especially for the passive investors who are tuning in and you know, maybe they're familiar with evaluating uh, an acquisition of a, an existing property, but I'd like to ask your thoughts about what passive investors should look for if they're evaluating a development deal like the ones you do. I mean, that's that's like a grad level underwriting yeah. course, so you know we're that we're just going for the high points here. But what do you recommend folks look at in terms of priorities evaluating? these deals? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I got to tell you, it's not the brick and mortar. Okay. It's absolutely the sponsor. You, you absolutely have to look at the sponsor's track record. You've got to ask them for references. You've got to know who the GC is for, for the group and you've got to know who the development team is. All right. So, um, and, and if your sponsor can't freely offer that information to you with their track record and their performance, then it's probably not the right relationship for you. I mean, Tom and I have been doing this, you know, realistically 20 years. Um, and, and we're very proud to say that we've got everything I just said, or I wouldn't have offered it up, of course. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, 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 we have that and we have a track record and we have, we have repeat, we've got guys that have been with us for 15 years, repeat investors. I mean, in almost every deal. I mean, it's kind of like we know we can pick up the phone and say, hey, we have one. And, it's all, and a lot of times I don't even look at the paperwork anymore. They just say, hey, is it, do you like it? Yeah, we like it. Okay, I'm in. You know, but that's taken a long time to, to build up that relationship. But um, when you're going to look at a development, I, I mean, everybody's got pretty pictures. Uh, you know, anybody, I mean, virtually anybody can develop on paper. Uh, you know, you've got to actually, you know, meet the sponsors, understand what they've done in the past understand the exit strategies. Okay. You've got to be very clear because if you have one way you want to go with your capital and they are clearly telling you we're going another way, there are sponsors that can, that you'll be able to align with, you know, and if you want something long-term, there's some sponsors that say, absolutely. We're long-term really funds about it. If answer much about it. Hmm. Interesting. So, uh, one of the things that I, uh, want to make sure I ask about is like skin in the game for the sponsor, you know, as a, when I passively invest in a deal, I want to know that, you know, the sponsor has, they're, they're, you know, putting their own money on the line too. And I'm, I'm not the the rube who's, you know, bankrolling the whole thing. How does that all work? And, and especially with the contractors too, right? Because if folks out there have flipped a house or whatever, they've probably had their own contractor issues. This is just a bigger scale. I imagine a contractor problem could 
be even worse. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and, and let me let me add, answer the the back part first. So, sure. so when we bring on developers and contractors, it's the same thing we do. You know, how, guys, how much money are you guys willing to contribute to the deal? Uh, I can't say it happens every single time, but the majority of the time, the developers and the GC contribute some form of of, of their fee and or cash. Okay, so that's we ask them to do that all the time. The other part of that, to be completely transparent with you, in the beginning. When Tom and I started this business, we put money in every deal. Okay, so we we were putting money into every single one of them. Well, the volume became so much that we couldn't we couldn't fund every single deal <laughs> the way it kept going. But we had kind of earned our stripes. You know, we had kind of said, okay, we understand the first deal, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Well, as we kept going because we were building and holding these for cash flow. Uh, it got to a point where we weren't putting in as much money or in some cases, no money of our own. But I, I will tell you this, the amount of skin we have in the game is huge. The amount of time, energy, we have a staff of seven. Um, we, we, we're we funding this company to make sure that we cover all our bases 24-7. And every time that we make a decision, and I mean every time, it's based off the equity, meaning the clients, our investors, it's based off them first. Tom and I will walk away from money to make sure our investors are made whole. And, and we've done that before and we'd do it again. That's good. That's good to hear. So uh, speaking of Tom, he wrote a book. I want to make sure that we gave an opportunity to at least briefly uh, discuss some of that. If you want to tell us about it uh, quick, you know, I know you have a copy sitter yeah. right there. So hey, I want to make oh, sure. By the way, I just happen to have a copy right here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's why doctors don't get rich. Um, you know, it's funny when I read this book, I knew I knew about 80% of the stories. So I was going, oh, I remember that. I remember that. So <laughs> yeah, I've been Tom about 20 years. Now, um, Tom is a true educator and teacher. Um, that's his passion. And he does such a fantastic job at it. And I've seen him change the lives of several people just by kind of spending one hour, two hours, three hours with them and just trying to shift their mind, kind of like we all had with the Rich Dad, Poor Dad book. You know, so many of us, you know, had had that epiphany uh, with that book. Um, and I guess I will go ahead and tell, tell the story about how Tom and I met. Um, and I'm 99% sure it was 99, maybe 1998. Um, we met at a real estate conference, and I'm sure it was the first conference that Robert Kiyosaki did. And Tom was in Austin. I was in San Francisco at the time. And I heard an ad, you know, like an interview on a Sunday afternoon radio show. And it literally like made me pull over my car and focus on, I'd never heard something so simple. And so common sense, you know, I go to the conference and sure enough, knowing that um, I would be relocating back to Texas. Uh, at the time I was engaged and we were both from Texas and we were going to move back. Um, uh, we went over and talked to Tom and said, hey, we're moving to Austin. He was gracious, said, hey, here's my number, call me. Uh, you know, he's an orthopedic surgeon, very busy guy. And boy, he answered the phone. And, and within, I think, two hours, we knew we were going to be friends. Um, we were like-minded and both just passionate about what we wanted to do. We hadn't gotten there yet. We didn't know how we were going to do that. And we actually didn't really become business partners for, uh, I want to say it was 2005 or six before we actually did a deal together. But we kept seeing each other around town, kind of investing in the same type of stuff. And sure enough, we decided to formalize it and 
here we are in 2021 and, and we feel like we're just getting started. Nice. I love that. And, you know, I think that that also speaks to the the power of kind of taking your time to get into a new business partnership. We see a lot of folks kind of start partnerships so quickly these days. It feels like complaining about the kids these days it makes you feel like an old man, but we see that happen a lot. You guys took your time and it obviously worked out. Yeah, it's, um, I, you know, we're still very much relationship driven, even with our investors. Um, I, I still am, and I, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm still floored that pe- there's those crowdfunding sites can raise as much money that they've never met the sponsors ever, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I'm just going like, it, to me, it's like, wow, you know, I see good for them though. You know, I mean, if, if they can do it, it's, it's uh, I still like a handshake and an eyeball every now and then. Absolutely. It's funny. You should mention that I'm on, I'm subscribed to a few of those, although I've never invested in one and I got it email about a deal in my inbox today about an acquisition somebody's doing where the, I'm not going to say specific numbers, but let's say the market, the, the return that they projected was probably 6% above what is really possible in acquiring an asset, like a class A asset these days in a major MSA. And, you know, I, I don't know, folks maybe just look at the number and they see, oh, like such and such IRR, I'm going to go for it. And like, <laughs> That's ridiculous. I, I doubt very highly they're going to be able to achieve that return, but they can send out an email blast saying that's what they're going to do. So, well, I, I tell you, some of those, and I'll give you, I'm, you didn't ask a question, but let me give my opinion on something here. Yeah. Okay. So, when you're talking about passive investors, I've always thought of this. Um, you know, so many people are fixated on the IRR, and you see these 18, 19, 21, 23 IRRs. Mm-hmm. Well, I could give you a 50 IRR if you let me have your money for six weeks. You know, I can, I can get that IRR up there pretty high, you know, and, but I, I'm, I'm going like, do, do you really want to risk putting in hundred thousand or a million dollars if you're only getting a small return? Because I can, I can get the IRR really high and return it back to you quickly. I always tell younger investors that are kind of starting real, really focus on either the multiple or the cash on cash. Yeah, because when you look at your cash on cash, whether it's 6% or 9%, you understand that as a non-financial person. You put in 100 grand, it's a 10% cash on cash, you get 10,000 a year is what you're going to average. I always like to tell our guys, look at the multiple, all right? You're putting in 100 grand. If the projection is a 1.8 multiple in year five, then you know your, your money's probably tied up for five years. And you're probably going to make 80,000 on your 100. So you'll get a return of 180,000. You know, you talk about kind of risk. You know, uh, if I know that I'm getting a good multiple and I'm getting money back on my money, that's something I like for early investors, younger investors that are just getting started, really focus on that. Well, I certainly appreciate that. IRR is a very, I don't know, esoteric. It's a, it's a, it's a weird yeah. metric. And, and the ones you mentioned kind of make a lot more sense. Like you said, to a kind of non-financial person that can run yeah. that math in their head. Somebody yeah. they get, so wow, 28 IRR. Well, how much money are you going to actually get back? You know, for your, for your hundred thousand dollar investment. Good luck figuring that out in your head. That's going to yeah, be, exactly. that's going to be a tough one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. Right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. 
That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called ground floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor, or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Darren, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I think I'm ready. I'm sure you are. First okay. one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? You know, the, the best investment I ever made other than education, I got like three of them here and I was thinking, which one do I want to focus on? You know, it really is to be actionable. And I say best investment. I the thing we all know who Yogi Berra is for the you know the uh, New York Yankees. I think one thing he said that really stuck with me, and all the things he said, you know, if you see a fork in the road, take it. You know, just take <laughs> it. Okay, just you know, quit the analysis paralysis. You know, and and, and go. You know, it's not going to be perfect the first time. It's not going to be perfect the second time. I've been doing this twenty years. It's still not perfect, but I learn something every single time. You know, um, and I think, you know, and if I go to the investment um, outside of just kind of a life lesson, probably the best investment I ever made was in our team. We, you know, you talk about relationships. Um, we have a team right now of seven people and I've got a business partner of 20 years for the most part that we took a lot of time to get to know each other. And, and it's important. And you mentioned it earlier, you know, people kind of getting a business partner too fast without fully vetting them. Kids these, you know, these I days. I can't tell you how important that is. Um, you get one bad apple as far as a partnership or a, an employee or a, you know, a team member, it, it can be pretty devastating. Nice. Well, can certainly appreciate that. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Ooh, uh, and I'm going to give you two answers again, kind of, because it, it, it comes up to um, um, probably one of the things is not listening to the people that are closest to me. I'm a very trusting individual. Um, and I think some of the worst decisions I made were I kept trusting the same person over and over again, going, give them another chance, give them another chance. At some point, it's OK to say no. I mean, just it, cut it off, move on. OK. Um, it's just fine. Absolutely fine to say no. The other thing I would tell you when you talk about investment itself, um, I used to invest in stuff I didn't know something about. And I can't tell you how many Texas oil and gas wells I lost money in. Okay. Um, so, you know, oil and gas is pretty big down here and you can make a lot of money, but you can lose a lot of money too. And I never invested my friend's money or my parents' money or anything like that. It was mine. Um, but I didn't, I didn't 
do a good enough job understanding the investment or vetting the investment. Um, and it's okay to do it once. Okay. It's maybe okay to do it twice, but when you've done it multiple times, it's not okay. You know, if I didn't learn a lesson, it's not okay. So that, those were, those were some hard lessons, but, uh, I don't do it anymore. Just, just FYI <laughs> 20 years, but I don't do it. Fair enough. Fool me once, fool me twice, fool me three, fool me four times, five times, man. Come on. Now we got to learn those Uh, lessons. Don't let the tax tell like the dog. (laughs) That's true. That's true. I like that. I like that saying. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Uh, I I, I can't be more serious about this is that um, I'm going to go with two answers again. building a relationship and you go back, I'm going to go back to what you said. It took my time getting to know Tom. Tom took his time getting to know me, um, you know, and here we are, you know, five years of kind of getting to know each other and a 15 year partnership, you know, it, it's been, I can't say enough, you know, get to know your partners, get to know your sponsors. You absolutely will be making the right decisions. In fact, the, the other, the other night I had a woman ask me, um, you know, have you ever made any mistakes in investing? And I said, well, no, just to see what she would do. And she goes, what are you perfect or something? I said, no, I'm not perfect. But I said, if I treat it as a mistake and not a lesson, you know, I, I go, then it is that I didn't make a mistake. I said, but I am purposely trying to, te- to take every mistake and say, tell myself, what did I learn from that? You know, what did I learn from that, uh, from that thing? But as far as the, the other investment, you know, I, I think if we look at, from a from a monetary standpoint, we love multifamily. We love housing. The government wants to lend you money for housing. Uh, we need housing. And I've done land development. I've done mini storage. I've done light industrial. I've done spec homes. I've done marinas. I've done a lot. And I can tell you that if your audience is primarily multifamily, and cash flow. I mean, it could be, you know, I, I, I just think multifamily is, it's easier to understand. Um, the debt on it can be incredibly attractive. Uh, the cash flow can be incredibly strong. Um, and I think the tenure or the longevity of multifamily is here for, you know, a long, long time. Nice. I totally agree. There's always, there's going to be a lot of demand for multifamily moving forward, even more than there is today. And Darren, I want to thank you for joining us today. If folks want to reach out, if they want to learn more about your company, if they want to get a, a copy of the book or anything like that, where can they track you down? So uh, I'll give them to just presarioventures.com or info at presarioventures.com. And that's P-R-E-S-A-R-I-O, presarioventures.com. So love to hear from you. In fact, um, you know, our entire group, we take calls and emails all day. Um, I will tell you this, anybody listening to this, one thing that I, I heard years ago, I thought I made it up that I found out another guy actually said it because he said, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, education without execution is just entertainment. And I said, okay, you know, if you've learned anything, go take action on it, learn some more and get away from the analysis paralysis and make that first investment. Nice. Nice. I love that. I want to thank you again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated. That helps other people learn about the show. That helps us grow in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me the warm and fuzzies because I know you're escaping the Wall Street casino along 
with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.